hope you are doing well. You know, I've been trying to do a unique coffee mug each and every morning, and I think I have not used this one. It's my Sojourn Network mug. I've got two of these, and so hopefully the one I showed you before is not this one, but if it is, the grace of God, right? Well, we are heading down the home stretch of our study through the book of Revelation. We've actually finished walking through the book and unpacking it and talking about it and discussing it, I guess, these last six, seven weeks, whatever it's been. And so what we're endeavoring to do as we draw this study to a close is to kind of do what I call a revelation recap, right? Is to go back and hit on particular themes or sticky wickets or theological issues or hermeneutical interpretive issues, um, things that that we might you might still have questions about. And so one of the ways that we're we're doing this is getting you to submit questions um, that you might have um, through our Facebook page in the comment section or to email me um, paul.gilbertofroxchurch.com. Um, and so, um, you guys have been doing that. And so let me pray for us and then I'll, um, we'll dive into our, our, our topic of the morning related to revelation. Lord, we come to you now for help. We, we are always in a posture of learning and coming under your word. And we freely, freely confess Lord that, um, we know only in part and so we don't want to make knowledge of you and of your word a mere speculative endeavor. We really desire to grow in knowledge so that we might be doers of the word, that we might be more hope-filled Christians, more trusting in you. And so, Lord, pray that you give us wisdom and insight um, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so one of the questions we got, and, and I think this is actually like the meta question, like the question behind all the other questions. Um, and this relates to this, the radically different interpretive schemes. And I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way, but interpretive grids that, that people utilize to understand what's happening in Revelation. And the one that's probably most familiar, um, at least to Americans, is on a popular level is what we see typified in the left behind books, um, which utilizes a, a dispensational framework for understanding the unfolding of the end times. And, and essentially um, that, that works out to something like this, that the world is getting worse and worse. And that Everything is building towards a climatic um, seven-year um, tribulation where there will be untold terrors unleashed on the world, persecutions of the church by the Antichrist, who is a physical person who and his minions, that there is going to be during this time, a um, first of all, there's going to be a period of peace where the Jewish people are going to come to faith in mass in Christ. There's going to be a re rebuilding of the temple. There's going to be a reconstituting of the sacrifices. And then this Antichrist will turn on the world, on the Jewish people. There will be great persecution. 
Um, there will be an Armageddon. There will be a, a, a great judgment. And then Christ will return and set up a literal thousand-year reign on earth. Now, all of that will be preceded by a secret rapture of the church from the earth so that the, the, the church at the time, Christians, will be, um, will be raptured, secretly taken away. That's a secret coming of Christ, and there will be a public coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. And of course, this tribulation will be marked by the mark of the beast and buying, you know, no buying and selling without the mark of the beast and, um, and such. So, so that's been a, a dominant um, interpretive grid. And what I wanted to show you, I think, through this study of the book of Revelation is that that's not the only way to read Revelation. In fact, I think it's a relatively new interpretive grid um, that has emerged over the last 150 years, but that this is not the way the church has traditionally understood this book. Now, I think it's in order to get at the heart, okay, of why there's such radically different approaches to Revelation and, and why I personally think that there is much about that dispensational framework that is high, not only highly speculative, but I believe really misunderstands the way we want to read Revelation. But not just that, it misunderstands the way that I think we should be reading Scripture, specifically the Old Testament. So in the dispensational framework, and I'm just going to kind of use the left behind moniker as shorthand for that, really understands that the promises made to Old Testament Israel that there will that the that the nation of Israel will come to possess the land that they will come to um, rebuild the temple and reconstitute the sacrifices that they will be uh, once again um, God's uh, chosen people. Dispensationalism really sees that all the promises made to Old Testament Israel will be fulfilled um, in a future. Israel state, okay? And so this is one of the, the, the key interpretive issues. How are we to understand the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament? And so if you believe that those promises are going to be literally fulfilled, obviously that's going to have a great bearing and shape, okay, over how you interpret New Testament passages, right? And, and in this sense, the dispensational framework will really lean on saying the Old Testament interprets the new. So if we want to understand best how to understand and interpret the New Testament, we have to look to what was originally said in the Old Testament. Well, personally, I think that this is actually backwards, okay, and that I and that historically the way the church has understood these things is that the New Testament interprets the old, right? That that if we want to understand, for example, how the promises to Old Testament Israel are going to be fulfilled, let's look to the New Testament and to see how the scripture writers look at those prophetic statements. And I believe that, um, and this gets to the heart of the issue, that the church, okay, the people of God, um, are the broad fulfillment of the promises made to Old Testament Israel. Um, and that and that the scripture writers concur in this and believe this to be so for just as at a couple of examples. 
So when you read Acts 2, and Peter is preaching to the crowd at Pentecost, okay, and he's quoting from Joel and talking about how the Spirit of God is going to be poured out. That was a prophecy originally made to Old Testament Israel. It was originally, in its context, pointing to the restoration of the people of Israel to their land and, and to their rightful place in the economy of God. Well, Peter takes that Old Testament prophecy, and guess what? He applies it to the church. In fact, he says it's being fulfilled right now, and that and that the people of God are no longer merely ethnic Jews. People, the people of God are those upon whom the Spirit has been poured out. So in this sense, the church is not a parenthesis. The church is not plan B for God. The church has always been a part of God's plan. His promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12. This is why Paul tells us, okay, and this is very interesting. Paul tells us in Romans 2, 29, when he says this, For one is, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is the matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So in other words, Paul says it's no longer the ethnic marker of being a Jew that designates one as a person of God. It's one who has the mark of the spirit. Now, he essentially says the same sort of thing in Galatians 3. And I find also this is a fascinating verse. He says, verse 28 in chapter 3 of Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So in other words, it's not just the physical descendants of Abraham that are children of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. If we have faith in Christ, we are the rightful spiritual heirs of the promises made to Old Testament Israel. And that, in fact, um, that Paul says, being an outward Jew does you no good, okay, in God's economy. It's about being inwardly the people of God. So so we come to Acts 15, for example, and James, this is a room full of Jewish Christians, by the way, Jewish leaders, and they're, and they're debating about how to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And James, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15, um, quotes Amos 9, which talks about the rebuilding of the temple of God, the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. And um, if we were to look at that original promise in Amos and Amos 9, it's originally given to, again, the people of Israel to talk about the restoration to the land and the rebuilding of the temple and the dynasty of David. Well, James takes that a passage and he applies it to the church. And he says that the church is now the tabernacle of God. The church is the is the rightful heirs of the throne of David. And so what so so again, why are we saying why are we emphasizing this point? It's to say that when you come to the New Testament with a presupposition that we're going to interpret all these prophecies um, written to Old Testament Israel in a in a very literal way that in other words they're going to be returned to the land and they're going to rebuild the temple and there's going to be a, an earthly king and all those sorts of things we seem to be a, 
adapting a different interpretive hermeneutic than the New Testament writers themselves did. They seem to believe that all of those promises to Israel are fulfilled in the church. And I just gave you a, a list of a few passages which I think sort of support that idea. So you may say, well, Pastor Paul, are you saying that there is no plan for ethnic Jews in God's plan of redemption? No, not saying that at all. Paul in Romans 9 seems to make it very clear that before the return of Christ, there will be an influx of ethnic Jews into the kingdom of God, that there will be an outpouring of God's spirit upon the Jewish ethnic people. And they will come into the kingdom the same way Christians come into the kingdom by faith in Christ. So, but saying that does not obligate us or mean that we should interpret all of the Old Testament passages about the future state of Israel um, in a literal way. Um, because when we start to do that, then we start to run into some equivalencies that are very challenging, right? So if, if, if anyone, um, so everything that happens geopolitically in the nation of Israel then comes to be seen as having all of these end time um, implications. And again, that's a mistake. It's going to lead us towards speculation. It's going to lead us to look at political events as the key determiners of what's happening in the Old Testament versus letting the New Testament dictate that for us. Now, does that mean that God can't use the current nation state of Israel in a strategic way to bring people to faith? Of course he can. Okay? And I'm sure he will and is, right? But that's no different than any other, okay, any other um, nation state that God works sovereignly in. And so now, who are God's chosen people? It's the church. It's the people. It's the people of God. We are the children of Abraham. So, so this really, I think, if you want to get upstream and try to understand what is the basis for these very different interpretations of of in times eschatology, that is a key feature, right? Um, does the New Testament interpret the old or does the old interpret the new? And those are super complex issues that, that theologians um, talk about and write, write books and commentaries about. But I think it helps us to know that when we are reading, okay, the Old Testament and we're seeing the promises made to God we have good biblical justification to say these are things that are being fulfilled spiritually okay in the lives of god's people in the church okay and um and it keeps us from you know engaging in these complex interpretive schemes and grids which are based on high speculation and they're based more upon observation of geopolitical events and realities than they are upon the word of God. Okay. So that's a, that's a short answer and abbreviated um, answer to, to um, some of the roots of these interpretive differences we see. Okay. And so, um, but it's a great question. And again, it's very difficult for me to do 15 or 20 minute slot. But hopefully that gives you some legs, a framework to go on as you are thinking about these issues biblically for yourselves. And as always, 
Let the word of God, okay, be our ultimate authority. Not me, not a, another author or theologian, but let the word of God be that. All right, so other questions you might have, uh, again, comment here on the Facebook live feed. Uh, send me an email, paul.gilbert at fourochurch.com. Thanks for the person who submitted that particular question. It's a great question. I think it's gets really to the root of all these things. Um, and let's pray for charity and grace towards one another as we as we wrestle through these things. Lord Jesus, we don't want to make this just merely speculative. We want this to actually move us towards a place of hope and encouragement. Lord, I think we want to spend less time speculating about the future and more time living in the present and living in the hope of the gospel and taking that gospel message to a dying and hurting world. Lord, give us grace in this. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks a lot, everybody. See you tomorrow.